the word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this night. Thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to look into your word. And we pray as, uh, as we just sang, Lord, that you would truly speak to us through your word. Uh, we thank you for the, uh, the great time to reflect on your, your creation and that it uh, gives us some insight into who you are. And we thank you even more than that, that uh, we have your revealed word, your special revelation, so that we might know you uh, more intimately. We thank you that in Christ we were able to know you. And I pray now as we look into your word that uh, you would give me uh, just clarity. Um, that I'd recall all that that, uh, that I have studied, that uh, you truly would uh, uh, speak to us this evening through your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn over to uh, James chapter 3. We'll be looking at um, the, the series that I have done with uh, the Pathfinders kids in James. I've called it uh, Authentic Palpable Faith. And I think I talked about this last time, but just a quick reminder of that's why I, of, of why I call it that is because as you go through the book of James, he gives very many uh, different practical sections on what true faith looks like lived out in the midst, in the midst of uh, difficulties, uh, in trials, in different situations. And so by authentic, I mean genuine, palpable. It's that which is uh, seen in action. Uh, James speaks a lot about that, uh, actions, uh, how what we say and what we say we believe, how that comes out. He hits that pretty hard in chapter 2 where he talks about faith without works is dead, um, which is somewhat of what uh, he builds on here and continues to build on. So this evening we'll look at authentic palpable faith and the realities of true, true wisdom. Uh, just a little bit of background again on, on the book of James. Uh, it's written by the half-brother of, of Jesus, and we just went through this recently, so I won't, I won't uh, belabor this, but just as way of reminder. So written by the, the half-brother of Jesus, James. Uh, it's considered to be one of the most, um, uh, one of the earliest of the writings of the New Testament books. He is writing specifically to those who are scattered under persecution, uh, likely. It says that they're just, they're dispersed abroad, and likely that is the reason for uh, his writing to these individuals. So they were in Jerusalem. They heard the gospel. They came to faith. Uh, it's a new way of living. They have, you know, they have their Judaism, but now they have the full revelation because they have the, the gospel. They have the, the life of Christ. And they're scattered abroad, and it's how do we live in the light of these things under these circumstances. And when you get into chapter 5, you can see the severity of some of the persecution is that they've moved, they're working for people, they're working for rich landowners, and the rich landowners aren't, aren't paying, paying them. So some of them are starving, and some have died because they're getting uh, basically ripped off by these rich landowners. So there's a lot of persecution because of their newly found faith. And I, I just briefly said, said what the, the, the aim of this is, and the aim is to 
uh, walk them through what it looks like to live out their Christian faith in different circumstances. And uh, James jumps right into it. He doesn't waste any time. He gets right into trials and says what you're to do in the midst of trials. And, and you know, chapter 5 tells us what some of those trials are, right? That some, some are actually dead and they're starving and can't take care of their families. Those are some of the trials that, that are in view. So he gets right into it and talks about what it is to live out the Christian faith. So the theme is just that. It's what does uh, faith in action look like? Again, authentic, palpable faith. Palpable, that being which you can you know, touch or witness or observe. So I'll read through this passage and then we will start walking our way through it. So starting in James chapter 3, uh, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not which, that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The idea that James has for, for wisdom here is a very um, Old Testament idea of wisdom. It is the idea of, of skillful living. And that skillful living is seen in application of God's word. So it's taking God's word it's applying God's word and it's living skillfully according to what God has revealed in his word. Proverbs uh, 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom, as some translations might say. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the true wisdom begins with a relationship with God uh, and it continues by taking God at his word and living accordingly. I mentioned earlier in James chapter 2, he, uh, he notes here that um, verse 26, he says, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And that's important as we go through this passage because he's going to be talking about what true wisdom looks like. And again, wisdom being skillful living, it's not, uh, it's not necessarily a head knowledge and, and we'll develop that a little bit more as we walk through it. Back in chapter 1, he says, um, in the midst of trials, if there's difficulty in counting it all joy, which is the, the command he gives there, he says that we are to ask for wisdom. So wisdom is not, uh, you know, he, you ask God for wisdom, God will give wisdom. And he says in chapter uh, 1, verse 5 there, that God will give it without reproach. And I, I love his wording there, that God gives it without reproach. It's, we come to God when we lack wisdom. And the idea of reproach there is that um, God doesn't, you know, like we might do, say, well, didn't I tell you this, or I told you so, or that kind of attitude, uh, a reproachful attitude. God doesn't do that. God uh, will give wisdom. But wisdom is not something that we just absorb. It is through, again, a careful study of God's Word, prayerfully studying through God's Word, because it's within the pages of Scripture that God has 
told us how we are to live. I think one caution as we, as we look into the book of James and think to remember is that not to just look through the book of James and just think of it as a bunch of uh, um, sections on moral behavior. Like this is how we are supposed to morally live. Because again, the, the drive of what he's getting at is this is what faith lived out looks like. So it's not just moral behavior or moral uh, platitudes. It's about faith in action. When we truly believe, when we truly take God at his word, it changes how we live. And so he's making direct application in, in each of these sections. And again, as I, as I mentioned last time we were in the book of James, he kind of uh, approaches teaching a little bit differently than, than Paul. We're probably used to Paul, who he lays out all the doctrine and then he goes to practice. James is going to mix those together. And I think when, when you, if you read through James, the more you read it, it's more like the, the teaching that you see uh, from Jesus, right? There's application, there's story, there's illustration, and it's all, it's all together in, in one, uh, one particular uh, section. Um, you know, Jesus is also the author of Paul's books, but used Paul's special skill set. So it is both his teaching, but I think just the, the earthly teaching that we see from Jesus, uh, James teaches much like that. So that's the caution to make sure that we don't just see this book as a list of uh, moral things that we are to do, but it is, a, it is guidelines for application of Scripture to follow God in obedience and take God at His word. Because that's really what he's laying out. This is what God's word says. This is how you live it out. Partly why I, I chose this passage is... Certainly, I see a need for wisdom in my own life. Uh, certainly, I see a need for wisdom based on what is going on in the world around us. Uh, it seems to be it seems that there is a, a great lack of wisdom and even understanding what, what true wisdom is according to God's standard, right? Because God's standard is the only standard that matters. It's, it's what does God have to say on the matter or on the issue? That's what... That's what matters. Not what we think, uh, not what we feel or whatever it may be. It is what does God have to say on the matter. So the problem that, that we have in this passage with true wisdom, we see that it is a problem that, uh, that is certainly rampant within our culture. And we certainly at times can be uh, affected by our culture. And I think our culture... The, the wisdom that is prevails that prevails is a sort of uh, pragmatism and pragmatism is the you know the philosophy of the ends justify the means so if you get a good result the way that you got there was good uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to employ the same means of getting to the end result that you did previously it's just if it works out it's good um, that, that pragmatism, is, it sometimes shows up in, uh, I think, uh, a couple of different mantras that are out there all the time. Uh, I know we've heard them. It's follow your heart, right? That's just do what you feel is right. Um, follow your gut is another one that people might say. Uh, do what's best for you. Or uh, do you have a peace about it? I think these are all sayings that they're not rooted in a foundation of what the scriptures have to say, 
that rooted in a person's personal feelings and personal emotions. Trying to come up with a fancy way of, of describing this type of philosophy, and the only thing that I could come up with is that it's a it's a ubiquitous narcissistic Gnosticism, and that ubiquitous just means that it's everywhere. Uh, narcissist, and we know what that is. It's just self-centered. It's prideful, and Gnosticism is a special knowledge. So I say that it's a special knowledge because for for what goes on in our world. This pragmatism, it's you can do what's best for you, you can do what's in your own heart, you can do what's in your own gut. You're the only one that has that information. So you have a special information that only you alone have to know how to navigate through a situation. So that's why I say that it's a, it's a ubiquitous narcissistic Gnosticism. Uh, it's everywhere, it's self-centered, and it's based on special knowledge that only you alone have because it's based on you know, whether you have a piece about it, what your heart tells you to do, what your gut tells you to do. And it's not grounded in any uh, standard. It's not grounded in any real truths. It's just whatever gets you through the situation, whatever, whatever allows you to navigate through life so that you feel good about it at the end, which often means that um, you got what I think is coming to you or what's owed to you, or you receive the respect that you wanted or whatever it may be. I think because that, that type of thinking, that pragmatic thinking is, is, is everywhere, uh, it's something that we have to be on guard against. And James deals with that uh, throughout this passage as he talks about what true wisdom, according to God's standard, what it looks like. And true wisdom is not divorced from morality, the way that God frames it, and certainly we can see that through the, through the book of Proverbs. So James starts with a probing question, as he does in a number of different sections within, within this book, and the probing question that he begins with is, who among you is wise and understanding? So there's the question that he begins with. There's the rhetorical question that is supposed to cause us to think. So what is our standard for what wisdom and understanding is? Is it the same standard as God's? Or have we allowed uh, worldly standards to creep in? Uh, which is so easy to do, worldly standards to creep in, right? That, that, uh, that narcissism to, to creep in so that we make decisions based on what is best for us. So who is wise and understanding? Again, what wisdom here, uh, the, what he's using here is the, the Old Testament idea, that skillful living. Uh, the word he uses here for understanding uh, carries the concept a little bit deeper in that it means to thoroughly know or to be endued with knowledge. Uh, it has the idea of expertise. So who is an expert at living? Who has this skillful living nailed down and who is an expert in it? So again, a challenging question to, to, to think about is where do we line up with what God says is wise? The word that he uses for, for understanding, um, he, he alone uses it in the New Testament. And, and one thing, if you've ever gone through the book of James, uh, that is a thing that's unique about the book of James is uh, he has a lot of words that he alone uses in the New Testament. He has a very different vocabulary. And I've heard you know, people, you know, scholars say that, you know, it's not necessarily hard to translate the book of James. 
in that the, the syntax and all those things are a little bit easier. It's just hard that it really broadens your vocab because he uses a lot of words that nobody else uses. And there's actually, I think there's three in this section, but it's all throughout his, his writing, he uses words that nobody else uses. This construction that he uses, this, this wise and understanding, it's believed that this is an allusion back to the, the book of Deuteronomy. And I have it in my notes, so you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 7, um, Moses writes this, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do this in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Uh, the Septuagint uses, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the same words that, that um, James uses here. That's why it's thought that this is an allusion back to that. He's going back to this standard that the people of Israel are supposed to have. Wise and understanding people, people that understood what it is that God laid out in his law, understood what God's word said, and then lived it out, that carried it out. So James is challenging us to examine our wisdom and understanding. And now we'll walk through, uh, there's going to be four realities about wisdom that we come across in this passage. So uh, reality number one is that true wisdom is demonstrated by good works. So true wisdom is demonstrated by good works. And we see this in uh, verse 13 as well. He answers his rhetorical question and he answers with uh, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So good uh, uh, wisdom and understanding is demonstrated through works. It's demonstrated through our behavior. It's, just, it's demonstrated in how we conduct ourselves. Because again, God's, God's definition of wisdom is skillful living. It's living according to his revealed word. So... True wisdom is demonstrated in good works. This, again, uh, picks back up on some of the things that he laid out in chapter 2. Uh, faith without works is dead. He also says, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So he says that back in chapter 2 to, to basically point out that true saving faith as a faith that changes us, that causes us to live differently, uh, because it's we, we're taking God at His word and making application. So, good uh, James says that wisdom must be set forth in a pattern of good behavior. Wisdom is demonstrated; it's proven; it's shown uh, in what it produces, and that is a, a fruit of of good works. And there's, there's many places we could look at to what these good, these good works are like. And if you notice, as we get further down in the passage, some of the things that are pointed out about, about wisdom are very similar to the, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, also, it, we can think of what um, Luke writes in Luke chapter 6, that you know a tree by its fruit. 
Right? A good tree brings forth good fruit, one that has wisdom, godly wisdom, uh, brings forth that which corresponds to godly wisdom, right? Uh, the application of biblical truth, skillfully lived out in a way that is pleasing to God. He gives us in this passage um, the manner or the means which these good works are shown. So by what means are these good works shown? And it says, uh, by the means of our good behavior. And good behavior here, the way he's talking about this, it's a quality of behavior. It is behavior that is morally good. It's harmonious. It's beautiful. It's excellent. Uh, those are different uh, translations or different words that are used to be uh, used uh, for that word there. This is also the same type of phraseology that um, Peter uses in a very similar passage. And this, these words together here, um, James uses it twice and Peter uses it once. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes this, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Uh, the word he says there in James chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your behavior excellent. That's the same, same words among the Gentiles so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may become, they may because of your good works. And then he goes on from there, but he's, he's within the same context, using them this, the same way. So our good works are demonstrated in good behavior, hate behavior that is beautiful and excellent before God, behavior that reflects the character of God. And I think when we think of wisdom and skillful living, uh, in our minds we should certainly go to the Lord Jesus as we live as as we see his life lived out in the gospels right because his behavior was excellent it was beautiful it was full of good works it was that which was well pleasing to God because he says i do what the father says he every word that proceeded from the mouth of the father is what he he did so when we think of this this beautiful behavior we should be thinking of the Lord Jesus Next, he talks about what are the character, characteristics of these good works. And he says here, uh, in the gentleness of wisdom, uh, some translations might have meekness. I, I think meekness is better there because there is, a, there is another word that can be used. Uh, some might have humility in their translations. Um, gentleness or meekness are, both fit well there. And I think the idea that he's getting at here in this, this phraseology of gentleness of wisdom it is this idea of, and this is what one commentator writes, he's like, it's, he, he writes this, yielding oneself in ready teachability and, and responsiveness to God's word. And James uses these same type of phraseology back in chapter 1, where he says that we are to receive the word implanted in meekness. Uh, some translations there again have humility, but he's using that same idea, that same um, idea of meekness, of submission to the word of God, of submitting to the word of God. So wisdom is shown forth, it's demonstrated by good works. And the second one he has here is wisdom is not self-promoting. And we'll see this in verses uh, 14 to 16. So he's going to give us a negative here. And this is uh, some of what I was talking about at our introduction. Stems from what is uh, going on in the, this, uh, this, 
these verses here, 14 to 16, is this idea of uh, selfish ambition, uh, promotion, promoting self. So if, to, if true wisdom is demonstrated by humble submission to God's word for the glory of God, uh, such that we submit ourselves willingly to God's word, here we have the antithesis, which would be uh, worldly wisdom is demonstrated by arrogant acceptance of one's own thinking, one's own heart, one's own gut, one's own uh, peace about it for the promotion of self. And so this is what I was saying in the beginning here, that, that it's that, uh, that ubiquitous narcissistic Gnosticism that, that um, is prevalent, that we do what we think is right in our own eyes at times, uh, you can see that certainly in how well that went in the book of Judges, right? When everybody did what was right in their own eyes, it was a, it was a mess. And they cried out to God to, to bail them out uh, repeatedly. I was thinking about this, this the, the arrogance of self-promotion and how off-putting it can be when we, we see it in others. Uh, it's very evident to us when we see people promoting themselves or doing what uh, they can to put themselves forward or doing what is necessary for their own, you know, the kind of the survival of the fittest mentality, doing what they must do to put themselves in a better position, a better likeness, a better financial status, to make themselves look better with their neighbor or whatever it may be. And it's so off-putting to us, but then as I was thinking about it, it's, it's one of those things, I think like many other sins, that we, we so readily detect when it's adorned by others, but we fail to see that we're wrapped in it from head to toe. It's one of those things that I think is very easily overlooked. And as we go through this passage, he says that this self-promotion, this self-ambition, this selfishness is the the root of all manner of sin. That's where he, that's what he says later on in this passage, that all manner of sin comes through this selfish promotion. So in verse 14, uh, he sets up the contrast, but if you have bitter jealousy, this idea of bitter jealousy is, uh, the word bitter, the only other time it's used is back in the earlier part of this chapter, where he says, um, does a fountain send out from the same opening, both fresh and bitter water. The bitter water there is, you know, harsh, not able to be, you know, not able to be consumed. It's not palatable. Um, the idea could be brackish, right? It's like a semi-salty water. You would not want to drink it. If you're thirsty, a brackish water, would, you would spit it out of your mouth. Uh, and the word uh, that's translated jealousy there is a word that can also mean zeal, and it's the context tells, tells us what the word, uh, how the word is used. So bitter jealousy, it's this harsh envy, and he couples that with selfish ambition. So it's, this, it's a harsh envy towards others, and it's selfish ambition. So it's promotion of self, it's self-centered thinking, it's prideful thinking, uh, it's arrogant thinking. And this is contrary to what God says that true wisdom is. It's antithetical to what true wisdom is. 
He says here in verse 14 to, to not be arrogant and lie against the truth. Uh, the, this idea of lying against the truth is relying, as, uh, lying against that, the specific truth within the context that true wisdom is demonstrated in uh, works, good behavior. So do not lie against that truth. Do not set yourself in opposition to that truth by saying that you have wisdom, but your life does not reflect wisdom. Your life reflects uh, pride and selfish ambition. The thing that's uh, interesting, I think, about the, the terminology there that he uses that's translated as, uh, as selfish ambition, it comes from a term that, again, he's, he's the only one that uses it. It's a term that can be used for, um, it's translated in some, I think it's in classical Greek probably, it's translated as those that are involved in like partisan politics. Or it could be a person that's uh, for hire, or it can be like a mercenary. So this idea of selfish ambition, it comes from that, that word. And, and if you think about what a, what a mercenary is, right? A mercenary is just somebody that's a sword for hire. So it's, they don't necessarily have loyalty to a nation. They don't have loyalty to a king. They don't have any moral standard in which they stand on. It's whatever, whoever's willing them, well, whoever's willing to pay them the most that's who they're going to work for. So the, the idea of selfish ambition comes forth from, from that idea um, that, that, has a, that has those meanings outside of the, uh, the New Testament and classical or, or other, other works. In verse, uh, verse 15, he says, This wisdom is not that which comes down from above in uh, James uses this phraseology back in chapter 1 where he talks about every good and perfect gift comes down from above. So that which is good and perfect comes from God. So God gives only good and perfect gifts. One of the gifts that he gives is his word. So being a good and perfect gift coming down from God would be the word of God uh, that he has given us, that, that rule for life and godliness, the sole rule for life and godliness. Right? That's what he's given us in his word. So this wisdom that is characterized by selfish ambition is not from God. It is not from above. And he gives us the origins of it. And the origins are, um, it is earthly, natural, and demonic. Uh, those are all pre pretty easily understood. Uh, earthly meaning that it is uh, terrestrial. It is of the earth. It is uh, worldly. It is not heavenly. It is natural, and I think what he's what he's saying here is that it is not spiritual. So it's from what is un. So it's natural. So it's opposed to spiritual. Uh, true wisdom is spiritual because it is based on what God says in His Word, and it's based on the Spirit working through us. Because you know, like I said earlier, as we get down through through this passage, you'll see that what true wisdom looks like is, in fact, fruits of the Spirit. And then he says it is uh, demonic. There's a couple of passages um, that I have here in my notes. Uh, one's from uh, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, and the other one's from uh, 1 Timothy. But in 2 Timothy, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, 
but wanting to have their ears tickle, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn their ears from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. So this is that idea of, of, of natural, that it is just earthly. It is what man wants to hear. It is what man desires to hear. It's those things like, you know, follow your heart or do what you have a piece about or follow your gut. It's not, it's not being grounded on the standard of God's word. And as far as it's demonic, uh, Paul talks about this when he writes to Timothy. He says, but the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by mean, means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience with a branding iron. So they teach false things, teach false doctrines and you know, Paul kind of makes a blanket statement here that, that ultimately all those doctrines that are in opposition to what God says, all those false teachings are demonic because they're not of God. So this worldly wisdom, this wisdom that is guided by self is earthly, natural, demonic. Uh, one commentator says that it's earthbound, spiritually dead, and demon instigated is how he translated, translates those um, those things. Uh, interestingly enough, that's that section there in in the Greek is is uh, poetic. So it's each sound of every word starts out the same, and they have the same amount of syllables. So um, you get the idea that that the intent that James had was for this to be read out loud, and that's something that people would pick up on because there's a kind of a rhyming syllabic sound scheme that's that's within that section. Uh, verse 16, he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. So selfishness, uh, pride, selfish ambition uh, leads to disorder. And every manner of sin comes from our prideful, selfish thinking. So what we call wisdom, if it is full of Selfish ambition or pride or anything other than what is grounded on the word of God, it leads to all manner of evil. And often as I've thought through this, this particular passage, I always get in my, my, uh, my mind this, the picture of, of like a pack of wolves. And if you've ever watched on a nature show, the, the wolves, they get along really well when they have the same goal, which is to take down the caribou. So they, they're all working together. And as soon as the caribou gets taken down, the alpha male takes over and he bites and snaps at all the other wolves so they don't get any portion of it. And the idea of selfish ambition in doing what is necessary for ourselves it's within this passage is like that, right? We can cooperate and get along with people, but as soon as they cross us up, if we don't have our thinking grounded in what God's word said, we can be like that. We can snarl and we can bite and we can seek our own. And like he says, it's, it leads to all manner of uh, disorder and all kinds of evil practices. So true wisdom is demonstrated by good works. True wisdom is not self-promoting. Uh, next is true wisdom is characterized by purity. 
He says this in verse 17, but wisdom from above, that is wisdom coming from God, wisdom that is pleasing to God, wisdom that has its origin in what God has revealed, or wisdom that is wrought in us through the Holy Spirit, he says is first pure. He picks out pure first and he puts that in a a primary position, that first off it is pure. Uh, meaning that it is characterized by what is acceptable to God. It reflects the character of God, and it is well-pleasing to God. Next, we see that it is it is uh, peaceable. So it is that which moves towards peace. And for some reason, I don't have that one in my notes. But anyways, peaceable, it's... It's that which moves towards peace, and he's going to hit that theme again. And interestingly enough, he, he hits that theme again in chapter 4, right? He starts chapter 4 with another rhetorical question. Uh, I love chapter 4. It answers all kinds of questions. In the beginning of chapter 4, he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And then he brings it back to that selfishness and selfish ambition and seeking self. That is the source of all of our quarrels. So why is there wars and conflicts, and why is there disagreements between people. Uh, he says, because we have our own desires and we carry out our own desires and we have our own selfish thinking. So he says it's first pure, so it reflects God. It is what is well-pleasing to God. It is peaceable. It is gentle. Uh, the idea of gentle is that it is, it is kind. It is yielding. Uh, it's a word that carries with it the idea of uh, accepting mistreatment with humility or submitting to dishonor. Um, and we can see that certainly we see that idea of gentleness in, in the Lord Jesus as he, is, um, he doesn't make an accusation back or he doesn't answer back. He gently accepts the position that he is in. Uh, next, it, we have that it is uh, reasonable, which could mean um, um, compliant, meaning teachable, uh, ready to receive instruction. Uh, certainly, we see that when we exhibit arrogance, that this is not a characteristic that we have, right? We're not ready to receive instruction. We're not ready to receive correction. We're not teachable. And just as a side note, I think when we read through the scriptures, you can see that uh, when we get to a position where we, we are unteachable, we are in a very dire position. When we are not teachable, when we're not able to receive instruction, when we're not able to learn something new from God's word, it's a very dangerous place to be. Uh, next he says it is full of mercy, so it is compassionate, uh, shows concerns for other, is full of care, Demonstrates kindness. Full of good fruits. Again, that which reflects the work of the Holy Spirit within us, the fruit of the Spirit. It is unwavering. Uh, so steadfast, without partiality, uh, grounded in truth. It is sincere or without hypocrisy. So genuine. It's the real thing. It reflects the character of God, not our own personal desires, our own personal wants that can be fickle and changing. 
So true wisdom is pure. True wisdom reflects the, the character of God. True wisdom reflects the character that we see of the, the Lord Jesus uh, in the Gospels. So true wisdom does, is demonstrated by good works. True wisdom is not self-promoting. True wisdom is characterized by purity. And the, and the last one is true wisdom produces peace. Uh, if you look at a lot of those, those truths about wisdom that he put forth, that it is uh, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, you can see that many of those characteristics uh, certainly would lend themselves towards peace. Right? Because we're not setting ourselves in opposition against anyone else. We are showing mercy, we're showing compassion when we follow what God's design is for true wisdom. I have a couple of uh, ways in, in, in my notes here of how that section, that last verse is translated because it, uh, it's a little bit difficult to, to grab the true meaning there. Um, and it's, read it again here in the New American Standard. And he says, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So that's why I say that it, uh, true wisdom um, produces peace. And one, tra- uh, one commentator translates it this way or adds this in to help an understanding. And he says, thus peacemakers produce in the atmosphere of peace, they create the harvest of righteousness. So that's one way that he, he one of the commentators walks through that passage. Um, another way is um, to understand that the phrase that he has there as the fruit of righteousness is the fruit that is, the fruit of righteousness is the fruit that is righteousness. So that's what is produced. So it's the, the seed that brings forth, that's planted, is righteousness and peace, and that produces peace. So it's, it's kind of the, uh, the idea of sowing and reaping that is put forward so, so often within the Scriptures. So if you, in wisdom, you follow wisdom, wisdom is going to produce uh, peace. And there's so many... Uh, passages that we could look at in the book of Proverbs that, that, that provide you know, a framework for that thinking, right? I, I think of one that comes up at work all the time, a soft answer turns away wrath, right? That's one that is, I've seen in application in many times. On both ends of it, I've seen it, I've seen it work because I've actually employed a soft answer, and I've seen it not work because I did not employ a soft answer. Uh, it's it's one of those ones that we can see in Scripture that it uh, it tends towards producing peace because we we answer in a way that we should we answer in a way that is uh, compassionate that is gentle and that produces peace. So the four realities that he he deals with in this passage is that true wisdom is demonstrated by good works. True wisdom is not self-promoting. True wisdom is not is uh, characterized by purity, and true wisdom produces peace. So we can go right back to his, his starting question as we think through this passage. Uh, who among us is wise and understanding? When we examine how we live and consider 
our ways, does our way of living, does our manner of life reflect what true wisdom is? So I'll leave us with that. Uh, who among us is wise in understanding? And you know, let us examine ourselves according to the word to see if we truly are grounded on the word of God such that we live according to his revealed word. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word of truth. Your word that gives us all that we need for uh, for life and godliness, your word and that directs us how to live. Pray, Lord, that we would be those that, that live in accordance with your word, that we would live in wisdom and not folly, that we would not be those that promote self, but uh, look to uh, glorify you, to promote you. Lord, I thank you for your your goodness and your patience toward us, Lord, when we do not walk in accordance with your word. Pray, Lord, that uh, you would work in us to, to be good students of your word, that we would be those that uh, uh, dig into your word so that we uh, do not live in a way that is uh, just reaction, but that we act according to what your word says. We thank you again for this night, for your word. And pray that uh, we truly would be those that, that live uh, wisely in accordance to what you have revealed. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.